Good morning. This morning I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to follow in your Bible, you can open them and turn to that. We ended last time in Matthew uh, verse 28 of chapter 5 with Jesus teaching about adultery and that it takes place in our hearts long before we ever physically act on those thoughts. And the point being that God judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts, not just the outward actions. The, the sin has already taken place in our hearts when we've looked with lust. It doesn't take the outward action, the, the physical touch, to have committed adultery. And so as we continue reading, uh, we're going to see that Jesus uses this as a segue to change into the topic of marriage and, and divorce. And we're going to, there's a kind of a change over time in there. We're going to look at all of that as we go. So Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 27 to verse 32. So Matthew 5, 27 says, If ye, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee, that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee, that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So as we look back here at verse 29 and 30, uh, these sound pretty extreme. They're telling us to pluck, it out, pluck out our eyes and to cut off our hand. I just want to uh, maybe just think about or talk about this question of, is Jesus actually suggesting that we literally do these things? Should I actually pluck out my eyes and cut off my hands if they're causing me to sin? I'm sure there's been many opinions given about this over the years. Um, but I think we're just going to look at this uh, within the context of the passage and just try to logically think about, based on the way Jesus is talking, if he's actually intending for us to do these things. And so the first step, I guess, would just to be established that we haven't changed topics. Um, Jesus starts in verse 27 with adultery, and he carries on after verse 30 and 31, still with the topic of adultery, uh, then within the, within the context of marriage and divorce. And so the, the topic itself hasn't changed as we're talking about these things. And so we can use verse 27 and 28 that are leading into these statements of plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands as kind of a, 
a way of guiding our minds in, in thinking about this. And so as we start in verse 27... Uh, we see Jesus quoting the Old Testament law, uh, which simply states, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This statement is very broad, and it doesn't deal with the specifics of the different ways that this can apply in people's lives. But in verse 28, Jesus starts to dig down a little bit, and he doesn't go broad at this point. Um, He starts to go a little broader with it as we get into verse 32, dealing with um, divorce and and marriage. But he just kind of digs down to the point where get into the heart of of people and how they think they're getting away with something that they're actually not going to get away with. How we are actually committing the sin in our mind, even though we don't actually physically act on those things. And so there's the context of what Jesus is talking about. And now he leads into verse 30, or sorry, verse 29. It says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. So now we need to ask the question, is plucking out my eye going to stop me from committing adultery. Verse 28 says, if we look at a woman with lust, we've committed adultery in our heart. So it's that look that we're talking about. That's how we connect these two verses is the looking with lust. And now if my eye offends me, pluck it out. The question is, does plucking out my eye solve the problem? Does it stop me from having lust in my heart? And I would suggest that it's not our eye that's sinning. It's our mind that's lacking the control and the the discipline to not look with lust. Um, I was talking just the other day with Paul and we were talking that it's natural to recognize beauty and we can't help but see people in our day-to-day lives as as we go about our business and we will recognize when somebody is beautiful we're capable of seeing that without lusting there's always a temptation at that point, though. And so now the question is, if I pluck out my eye so I no longer will see that, does it eliminate the temptation? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't because our mind is capable of creating those images all on its own. We don't need to actually see something in order for our mind to create that visual image. And so we can lust without seeing something, just by desiring something that or someone that we aren't married to. And so we can commit this act of looking with lust with our eyes closed or 
with them plucked out if that was the case. And so does plucking out her eye solve the problem? The answer is basically just no, it doesn't solve the problem. The next verse, verse 30, says if your right hand offends you, cut it off. And so the progression as we're looking at adultery, Jesus says if we look with lust, we've already committed adultery. It doesn't take the physical act, but the natural next step would be we're going to commit the act of adultery, physically touching somebody after that lust has already built in our hearts. So are we going to solve the problem of not committing adultery if we can cut off our hands to prevent us from physically touching another person? Well, the sin already took place in our hearts according to what Jesus already said. So does cutting off our hand solve the problem? Will removing our hand eliminate our ability to commit adultery? And the answer, according to what Jesus has already said, is no, because the lust is in our mind, and the lust has already committed, our mind has already committed adultery through lust. And so, coming right back to that original question, is Jesus actually suggesting that we pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands? Literally actually doing these things. Well, if, if doing that could actually keep us from the sin, I think the answer would be yes. But the point is that the problem doesn't lie in our eyes and our hands. It doesn't lie within our physical body. It lies within our hearts and our minds. And that we can't simply cut off. So just as I see it, Jesus is establishing the law to include more than just our outward actions, but our thoughts and attitudes. He's also establishing how seriously God wants us to take our sin. To the extent that if cutting off our hands or plucking out our eyes could keep us from sin, could keep us out of hell, then that's what we should be willing to do. That's the extent, how extreme we should be willing to act to keep ourselves from sin. The problem is that it's not our hands and our eyes that commit adultery, or any other sin for that matter. It's the sin of the heart is the problem. The problem doesn't lie in our hands. Now we can see from these statements how serious God takes our sin, and we need to take it just as seriously. We have a tendency to minimize the seriousness of our own sin as we try to justify our actions and our behaviors, often ignoring what the Bible has to say about it, and thus never properly confessing those sins and repenting of them. We need to take action against our sin, cutting off our hands, so to speak, figuratively, not allowing ourselves to ignore the seriousness of breaking God's law. Now, as we move on to the next verse, Jesus includes in this natural connection um, and the solution, in, in some ways, to adultery. 
and that's marriage. And sadly, just as it's a problem today, it was obviously a problem in Jesus' day as well, is this topic of divorce. Um, And that's where Jesus starts, and that's basically where his focus is at this time in, in this passage. So, now back in, again in verse 31, he begins with the Old Testament um, regarding what it says about putting away a wife and that it says to give uh, a written statement of divorce. And presumably that was intended or thought to free both parties to go on in their lives and, and to remarry and to, to forget about their past, to, to move on from that relationship. But, of course, just as in the, the previous areas of the law that Jesus has, deal, has dealt with, Jesus now reveals a better, a more complete understanding of what God's intent is and the, the ramifications of that law and just God's mind regarding that topic. Verse 32 essentially tells us that there is no legitimate reason for divorce aside from fornication. And that if that isn't the case, all parties that enter into relationships with those people that were divorced are committing adultery. And we can see that in uh, Matthew chapter 19, he talks about the same topic again with some people and it gets explained just a little bit further <clears throat> and it's very clear that all parties are guilty of adultery if they move on from this relationship aside for that reason, for, for the divorce. Now what that tells us is that this loophole in the law that lets us get divorced and move on to the next relationship wasn't intended to be used as a loophole. It wasn't intended as as a a way of getting out of relationships that we're just not happy with anymore, that we're tired of that person and we want to move on. This isn't a, a way of getting out of those kind of relationships. It's intended, God's intention for marriage is for that a man and a woman to come together Forever, for the rest of their lives. Um, Bible says uh, that a man is to leave his father and a mother and to cleave unto his wife. And in our marriage vows, we typically use the phrase, till death do us part. Meaning that that bond, that contract that we're signing as we're entering this marriage is not meant to be broken. Now, God's intention for marriage is that within that relationship, um, we would have all of our physical needs and desires satisfied so that we don't get involved with this sin of adultery. Solomon tries to express this rather poetically in in Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, in verses 15 to 20. And Solomon, having had something like 800 wives, is hardly the example 
of this, but perhaps um, he's speaking from wisdom that was acquired by experiencing the other side of what he's recommending. Now, regardless of Solomon's personal personal actions, in Proverbs, he's certainly expressing God's intention for us, which is why we have this written in our Bible, recorded for us to read today. And so, when he tells us to rejoice with the wife of our youth and to be ravished always with her love, that picture is one of ongoing, the longevity of the marriage, right into our old age. And with the, the wife of our youth, as it describes, we're supposed to hold on to that relationship. It's interesting, the picture that he paints at the beginning of this, he's um, kind of vague as to, to what the topic is that he's talking about. He uses terms, he says, drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. And he's talking about the same thing that Jesus is here is in adultery and fornication outside of the marriage. He's like, stick with your marriage. Stick with your your husband and your wife in those kinds of relationships. Choosing to love and to be satisfied by our marriage partner is God's prescription for avoiding the lust associated with adultery that Jesus is talking about. The Apostle Paul addresses marriage as having this exact purpose uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 2 says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. And then he carries on in the following verses, instructing us to give ourselves one to another in our marriage to satisfy each other, to keep us from the temptation of lust and adultery. There's, of course, more to marriage than just the physical, intimate aspects. And the basic relational aspects of marriage are just as important and if overlooked, they can lead to an adulterous relationship that starts not from a physical lust, but from having another person fill an, evo- an emotional void simply by showing interest and concern or empathy. The emotional aspects of marriage that shouldn't be ignored either. Ephesians chapter 5 gives instructions to husbands and to wives regarding how we're to treat one another, giving respect and honor and reverence, taking care of each other as you would your own body. An interesting thing is the comparison made between the marriage relationship with a husband and wife and that of the church with Christ. The church is frequently referred to as the Bride of Christ. Paul uses that comparison here in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 25 to 27, to explain how husbands should treat and care for their wives and 
the purpose or attitude that they should have in doing so. It says, it says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is a picture of self-sacrifice, complete selfless outpouring of love that's used to strengthen and build up the other person so that they can flourish and, and prosper in their role within the marriage. I can't claim mastery in this area. Um, I'm well aware of my many faults within my own marriage relationship, and I know I need to do better. But I can I look at passages like this, and I see this description of what I should be striving to be as a husband. And the point that we can see in this is that we don't just fall in love and live happily ever after. Marriage takes continuous, diligent, ongoing effort to maintain and grow that relationship. The best advice uh, Jen and I were given regarding our our marriage relationship was by some friends we were staying with um, many years ago now. And that was to read a book about marriage and, and that relationship on a regular basis together. I think that couple said that they would read one of these kinds of books together every six months or so. Now, we haven't been that diligent, but we've followed this advice to, to some extent, and we've definitely found that if nothing else, the time spent together with the purpose of strengthening our marriage strengthens our marriage. Now, I'm sure there's been some useful advice in many of those books, but none of that has been what's stuck. And I think those specific things are less important than, than the actual, the simple act of working on the marriage, of putting effort into that relationship, working together with the purpose of growing and building our, our marriage to strengthen it. The fact is, marriage is hard. We're all fallen, sinful, selfish people. And we all need to be consistently reminded of the ways that we need to act towards one another. For those who aren't married, back in that passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 suggests that rather than fighting temptation, it's better to get married. But there's also the suggestion, both here and elsewhere, that for those who don't struggle in this area of temptation, it's better to stay single, unless you'll be better able to focus all of your energy on serving God. Recognizing 
not necessarily as a bad thing, but just as a fact of reality. The family relationships demand and take away some of our, our time and our energy that could otherwise be used for serving God. Now, of course, there's much more that could be said on, on this topic of marriage. Um, the Bible is contains much more on the topic, and there are countless examples of marriages throughout the Bible that we could look at and, and learn from. And this is why we should all be reading our Bibles. We should all be studying our Bibles, seeing the successes and failures of everyday people, just like you and I, who are recorded, their lives, their experiences are recorded for us to look at and to study and to learn from. Learning from their mistakes and seeing their successes, seeing where they've um, obeyed God and been blessed through that, seeing where they've failed in obeying God and how that has hurt them. And so we can look to the Bible as we read these stories, and it's more than just a story. It's a lesson for us that we can grow and, and learn from. Let's thank you again for joining me today, and I hope you join with me next time as well. Bye for now.